This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Tell Me This. I am one of your hosts for this 10-part series on paradoxical leadership, Carrie Borkowski. My co-host, Danielle Scarano, is sitting this one out. I'm going to do it solo. So um, I'm super excited, and Danielle and I really enjoyed interviewing our next guest, Dr. Kanita Williams. She serves as the Chief Operating Officer at the Southern Education Foundation. We refer to this during the interview as SEF, in case you're wondering. In her role, Canito works to strengthen existing program, leads on key strategic initiatives, pathways for impact, partners with the president and CEO in the development and management of organizational strategy, represents SEF's values and efforts to key stakeholders and the public, and manages a cadre of programs and resources designed to cultivate a constellation of change agents to enact policies and practices that lead to a more equitable education system throughout the South. Kanita brings a wide range of knowledge and critical experience to the education equity space, having held positions in the public, private, and nonprofit sectors. Over the course of her career, Kanita served as the Partnerships Manager for Atlanta Public Schools, Senior Program Manager for Public Policy at the Southeastern Council of Foundations, spent several years as a consultant for JFM Consulting Group, and worked on Capitol Hill as a legislative correspondent for the then-Senator Barack Obama. Kanita is also a Teach for America alum and spent three years teaching third grade in Atlanta. Kanita earned her BA in political science and history from Yale, her master's of public policy from the University of Michigan. She has a teaching certification from Georgia State University and most recently just earned her doctorate from Johns Hopkins University. So Clearly, um, this woman, this amazing leader, comes to us with lots of experience and training, and I think you are really going to enjoy this um, interview that Danielle and I had with her. There were so many. I feel like when I was looking at my notes from the interview, (laughs) I was taking so many notes because she was just, there were so many um, quotable quotes that she shared with us, and I just really enjoyed learning from her. I really enjoyed hearing about her experiences and really digging into this idea that, you know, leaders are not born, they're grown and that you can learn and mentor. And um, just hearing about the way that she engages with both her team, as well as the stakeholders and the school communities with whom she and SEF work was just super inspiring. I mean, it's so much of what she said, I feel like is transferable to 
multiple contexts. Um, we talked a lot about, you know, um, hard skills versus soft skills. And, and, and she quoted during the interview, hard skills get you in the door and soft skills keep you there. And so it really was, we had a great connection. I felt like we were building community among the three of us. And we talked so much about in her work, how Kanita, Dr. Williams also builds connections and relationships um, to promote and really uphold the vision and mission of SEF and, and the schools and communities with, with whom she works. And so I really think uh, Kanita <coughs> embodies m many of the things that we talk about right here on this podcast. So I'm so looking forward to sharing this interview. And I'm going to say I hope you enjoy it, but I also feel really confident to say I know you're going to enjoy it. So Stay tuned, and here comes Dr. Williams' interview with myself and Danielle. Thanks so much, everybody. Take care. Well, welcome back to another episode of Tell Me This. And Danielle, I think um, this is officially like the wrapping up the final interview of the 10 the part series on paradoxical leadership. And I am so excited, like so overjoyed and I'm not being dramatic. I have been wanting to sit down, even if it's virtually sit down with this um, wonderful, amazing leader uh, that I'm going to say Dr. Kanita Williams, because she doesn't have the diploma in hand, but she has finished the dissertation, so I think you have rightly earned those letters in front of your name. So, uh, Kanita, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I am equally as excited to be here. <laughs> was really looking forward to it. Um, just eager to hear and learn from you too, and 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 just be in um, fellowship and conversation about leadership. Absolutely, absolutely. And Danielle, it's always good to see you as well. So I don't get to see you as much because we're not taking classes together. So the, seeing you at the podcast is always fun for me. So good to see I'm you. I'm always, as always, happy to be here and just so excited to meet you too, officially, Kanita, as well. And happy to get your thoughts. And I like how you use the word fellowship. So I'm excited to learn from you both today. Pleasure to meet you too, Danielle. Yeah. So Kanita, I want to just jump in. As you know, this 10-part series has really been focused on leadership and this idea of paradox, or as we've learned Danielle and journeyed through this idea of how do leaders effectively make sense of and really juggle multiple narratives that you face. And Kanita, I feel like you are uniquely qualified and positioned to talk about leadership from these different perspectives, because I feel like even in your current role um, at Southern Education Foundation, you've hold, you've you've worn different hats. And so I'm curious in your experience here and in other um, professional areas, what's your definition of leadership? You know, um, well, again, thank you for having me, Carrie. Yeah, it's really excited sure. to be here. You know, the interesting thing, um, which Hopkins is totally not paying me or plugging, <laughs> plugging me for any of this, but if you had asked me maybe just two, three years ago, what my definition of leadership is um, you'd have gotten a totally different answer from me um, for a lot of reasons. Mm -hmm. I think um, 
I just don't think I knew what leadership was, you know, I think, um, which is not surprising, you know, we learn about the different scholars of leadership. Um, and Burns says that, you know, leadership is one of the most observed, but least understood phenomena <laughs> on earth, um, or something to that effect. Um, yeah. Um, I feel like I should add a citation, but I won't. Um, <laughs> I do all the time, so it's fine. <laughs> and I say I was I was there. I, I think what I knew to be leadership was very much that traditional image of a boss mm. um, based on a system of compliance, entirely based on extrinsic motivation like rewards and um, punishment. Um, and, you know, it was I'm the boss and the boss tells you what to do and you make sure that you do it. Um, mm. But I will say now that I've been um, enlightened, if you will, uh, <laughs> um, it's not what I think at all. I, I realize that leadership is much more um, about action than necessarily people. If, if not more, it's about equally those things. Um, I see leadership at its core really about um, making people better, both uh, either individually or collectively. Um, and so I really, I guess, define leadership as like this process of just kind of um, activating and motive, mobilizing people to really kind of maximize their efforts and their impacts toward a goal. Um, and that could be an individual goal, that could be a collective goal. Um, but it's it's all about, um, not all about, but it's much more about influence. It's not about force. It's not about power, authority. It's not necessarily tied to formal positional power, um, but it's about bringing um, about good change, positive change in people, groups, teams, organizations. Mm. I love Kanita how you're the last um, guest because you synthesized I think every definition that have come from all of our speakers. So there's so many directions that I think Karen and I could take with this. But you said the word enlightened, so I'm just curious: Do you think that leadership is malleable, and how how to in your mind, um, based on your definition, is leadership malleable? So you know. Um, it's absolutely malleable because I think we um, why is so misunderstood because we come with this notion um, of what it means to be a leader and thinking that it is um, something that's innate always something that you're born with it's a zero sum game um, either you're born a leader or you're not and and you know some people are naturally more characteristic. Some people are naturally more risk averse, so they're ready to step up and lead sometimes when others aren't. But leadership is actually something you can learn. It's a skill that can be honed, it can be developed. <laughs> um, you know, these are competencies that can be taught. Um, so it's malleable. And, you know, I would hope it's malleable because I, at 41, hopefully am not the same leader I was at 21. God forbid <laughs> anybody that I'm leading if I'm still the same person at 21. Um, but I wish we would push that narrative more that is people can be and grow in leadership. Um, and I think it would inspire others to be leaders and hopefully push people to be better leaders to, to really hone their craft. Mm. That's such a, a Danielle and Kenny, that, that that idea of malleable and I wrote down, you said learning and leadership, right? Because we you're right in some of those early readings in that first course, it's all about this trait based, right? This idea that you're a born leader um, and, and the progression of that literature, of course, says tells us otherwise. Mm -hmm. So in the spirit of that sort of learning and being malleable, Kanita, I'm wondering, how do you both sort of embody that as a leader and also empower others 
to take that on. And what I'm particularly thinking about is this, this, this other part of the series is about paradox, right? And this idea that there are, you know, the definition in, in Webster's tell us it's conflict to conflict, seemingly conflicting ideas. You know, we've, we've sort of amended that as we've moved through and we're talking more about multiple narratives versus them all always being in conflict. And yeah. so to me, all of that goes along with this idea of learning. And so I'm wondering, how do you come to the table? I mean, you're a chief, chief operating officer, you know, newly chief operating officer at a foundation. And quite frankly, my guess is the expectation is you have some expertise and talent. So like, how do you show up with that identity and as a learner, like how does that happen for you? Oh, wow. You know, there's so many different things um, or ways I could answer that. So a couple of things that pop in my head. Um, one, is um, I think part of my new enlightenment or understanding is that um, leaders do not always have to have, they don't always have the answers, nor do they always have to have all the answers. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, I feel like if you came across a leader that thinks that they have all the answers, I'd wager they <laughs> probably have a warped understanding of what it means to be a leader. Um, but I do think um, you, while you don't need to have all the answers, you do need to be able to arrive at good judgment. And that means having um, processes uh, to think critically and arrive at that, um, that judgment. And so that means you open yourself up um, to the idea that, um, you know, there is always, um, there's not always one single truth that exists. Like, you know, there are some, certainly things that where there are indisputable facts about some things, um, but oftentimes, as we know, knowledge is contextual and, and um, you know, co-created. And so that means you really start to open yourself up to the possibility of learning new things, of relearning, <laughs> adding new things, of unlearning, mm -hmm. um, shifting some of those beliefs. And I think, if that is your approach as a leader, which I think it should be, um, then you show up uh, as welcoming ideas, and mm -hmm. um, and and we are learning this together. Or you know, I might have some expertise, um, I might even have some more experience, but I don't necessarily know it all. Um, and so I think that's part of why I kind of approach leadership as. Um, I'm a team. We're a team. It's mm -hmm. not. I'm not your boss. We're we're a team. Um, and so that's how I, I try to approach it. Mm -hmm. How does your team respond to that? Like, are they surprised? Are they taken aback? Is it? Is that like? Maybe I don't know as much about the you know Southern Education Foundation, like in terms of culture. But what's the reaction to that? So it's funny because um, I think when <laughs> when you first start to work with me you're kind of like is she for real because i mean in the organization i'm like here's what i think and i'm like you know i feel like i'm a pretty smart cookie um and you know i connect dots i critically think and i i know that part of my value in the organization is i bring good judgment i bring good answers to the table um but i'm very much like it's a suggestion we don't have to do this and they're like does she really mean that <laughs> i'm like no really like i have we have no time for egos in this like it, it, mm. what's going to get us to the answer uh, or what's going to make the work better what is going to make schools better for these black and brown and low-income students or under-resourced students that we're supporting and so i think they react um 
they're kind of unsure at first until they really, really work with me and, and I will push back and, and I'm good to see email. Like actually I just um, was just talking to one of my program associates, I'm speaking on a panel and I was like, this is what they want recommend what you think I should cover. Um, and if you think you know the work as well as I do, like, so let's think about it. And, and I was saying, I'll either say, yep, absolutely. Or no, let's take it in a different direction. But I'm like, cause it, I'm hoping one day she'll be doing this stuff in my stead. Like mm. I can't be everywhere. So like, right. you know, let's think about this together. So it's interesting. I think it's also in, in Tim, I, I know I can be intimidating. Uh, <laughs> Just because I'm like, well, what what do you think? I was like, mm. we don't have time. What do you think? Like, mm -hmm. let's, and they're like, you really want to know? <laughs> um, and I'm also very much like, nope, let's go in a different direction. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. I, first of all, love your energy, Kanita. And I'm yeah. so excited <laughs> to continue to dive in more. And when you were talking, I heard a lot about the paradox of leader and learner. Mm -hmm. And you talked about this process of good judgment and as Carrie and I have been interviewing leaders and, and with you, we want to continue to see, hear about how, what that looks like in action. We were first talked about operationalizing things like good judgment, but then we switched our terminology to humanizing it. So how do you, what does good judgment look like to you? I mean, you talked about processes and thinking critically, acknowledging multiple truths, having this co-construction of narratives. I heard feedback and, and really decision-making process, but what does that really look like in terms of holding this identity of leader and learner and this good judgment on a day-to-day -day basis? Oh, wow. So Danielle, no hard question there. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, and you know, I think fundamentally it looks like just asking good questions and not mm. being afraid to ask the questions. I think that is, um, probably what I am most good at, good at too in my organization. Like, um, it's very funny. Like I'm on a lot of calls with my president CEO now. And so every call we're on with a new organization new partner, he's like, Kanita, what questions do you have? Cause he's like, I know you have questions over there. And I'm like, I do, but I don't <laughs> want to be the one derailing everything all the time. But like, we need to understand, you know, what's as my friend, she's like, what's the net net? What is, what are we absolutely getting at at the end of the day? What is the ask? What are we asking of our families? What are we asking of our practitioners? Like, I just need to know what's the net net. And so I ask the questions. Um, and I think that's, Oftentimes we don't come to good judgment um, because people are afraid to look vulnerable or people mm -hmm. think it's a dumb question. And I'm like, I guarantee you somebody else is thinking about that question. So you should just go ahead and ask it. Um, and I think um, that's part of it. I think it's also just really, um, you know, being okay with being in the discomfort of a paradoxical mindset, like, you know, particularly for organizations like ours that are equity focused, um, that are um, particularly for me as a woman of color, a leader of color, like, you know, I have to be okay with um, asking about the paradox, the paradoxical mindset sometimes or really leaning into it because a lot of times we are not often um, thinking about how privilege and oppression can coexist. Like we're like, okay, we fight for racial equity. I'm a black woman, so I lived oppression. I must know it all. And, and that's not true at all. In fact, we probably have a lot of blind spots because I'm relying so much on lived experience. Um, and also, um, you know, 
really acknowledging kind of the intersectionality of the issues that we're mm -hmm. thinking of. We had this very interesting situation um, in our organization and it, it ended up being very good, but we put out a statement about um, the um, unjust killings of African-Americans, particularly in Atlanta. We it, Obviously it was Ahmaud Arbery at the time. And then George Floyd was that kind of catalytic mm -hmm. symbol um, at the time. And so we put out a statement. And so in that statement, we talked about uh, George Floyd. We talked about Amar Arbery and we even talked about Trayvon Martin. And so me asking the question of like being willing to be vulnerable and put it out there. And I was like, well, what's up with Breonna Taylor? I meant, are we saying black lives matter or are we saying the lives of black men matter just a little bit more than the lives of black women? Because if we're, we can be racially equitable but not be socially just we're falling we're falling short mm -hmm. of being socially just with mm -hmm. that um and so like that was a very eye-opening experience for us as an organization that literally has 150 years of mm -hmm. fighting for racial equity for underserved communities that like wow you missed the mark on that um but that only came out because i was like hey can i just ask this one question that may totally mean we have to trash this entire piece <laughs> Um, but it ended up, and it's so funny because now when I hear um, my president talk about the work, like he's like George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, like it's just natural for him. Mm. I was like, I did that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, it's interesting. I'm fascinated by this, this idea of the power of good questions, right? Cause I'm, I'm a little bit like you, Kanita. I always have a question and I feel like I'm driving somebody crazy because I just have one more question. Just one more question, please. Um, and so I'm, I guess I have a couple of questions rolling around in my head. The first of which is, why do you think, and this has been my experience, so I don't want to project my experience on you, but what I, what I heard you say is sometimes you feel like you might be, you know, a thorn in somebody's side asking that next question. What do you think it is about asking questions that sort of feels bothersome sometimes instead of the curiosity that we intend it to be? I'm wondering if you have thoughts. Wow. That, so that is a really good question. So if off the top of my head, I think it just, um, I think it honestly goes back to our misunderstanding of what it means to be um, a leader sometime or what it means to have formal authority and how hierarchical um, some of these organizations can be and that um, questions look more like a challenge mm -hmm. than something to just hopefully make us be better. Um, and, and so I think, you know, it's, um, are you looking to undermine? Are you looking to, um, you know, um, under, uh, like, just totally derail what it I was saying. I'm, I'm like, what's the word I'm trying to say? Yeah, derail. Derail is yeah. a good word. Yeah. Um, it's not undermine. What is, or maybe it is undermine. But, um, but I think there's a fear of one, a number of things. One, challenges to authority people just see that and it's not you know we see it in in our homes um mm -hmm. like your, your kid asks you a question <laughs> and you're ready like to you know go off fly off the handle and they're just like mom i just asked if we could have dinner at 30 <laughs> instead of six o'clock <laughs> like it really kind of was a question it wasn't yeah. a challenge so i think it's that i think it's um nobody wants to i think the beauty of paradoxical mindset and thinking is that you can have a right and right situation because mm -hmm. we're so used to it being either or and not and both. And so mm -hmm. 
um, people don't want to look wrong. And if you ask questions, you're going to um, poke holes in what I said, um, especially if you do it in front of my boss or, or anything yeah. like that. I think that's what, I think that's what it comes down to. And then also just competition. We're just always in scarcity mindset. There is obviously enough to go around for mm. everybody if we really just were good stewards of resources. So like I always tell um when I meet and I embrace um, like different groups of either women or black women or people color, um, it's like my star or my shine doesn't dim your star. Mm. We can all shine. Like yeah. it just, that's not a problem. Like, yeah. so why we have to think that it's always a competition and there can only be one star is beyond me. But I think that's part of why people just don't like questions. Yeah. I like, I like how you said, cause we, I'm comfortable with the both and phrase, right? Instead of the either or. I like how you said right and right. Mm-hmm. That that's a really simple, clean way. Like you can both be right. Like mm-hmm. they can be different and they can both be right. So um I really I wrote that down because I really like that. So I'm gonna have to steal that from you, Kanita, but I will give you attribution. So don't worry. I will <laughs> always you. attribute that to you. So Danielle, I saw you jumping in there. So I'll hold my question and let you go. Yeah, I just had a question. I think I'm going to keep circling back to this because Kanita, you're offering so so much just spectacular insights. And I want to almost be like, okay, now how do I do this tomorrow? <laughs> so my question is for you. I mean, for those of our listeners that are sitting here, how do you then create that space mm-hmm. for open dialogue, open questioning? How do you move from, oh, we're only questioning to, let's say, undermine authority or for competition to questioning is the necessary forum for innovation, for creativity, for vulnerability, for courage, the list goes on. Mm. So I think um, it just requires a lot of intentionality. Um, Mm. It is um, one. So now in like my COO role, I run our staff meetings, I run our leadership team meetings. And after every report out on a strategy or anything, president's report, operations, CFO, I've asked, does anyone have any questions for this person that just, so you, one, you just build in the space and opportunity to do it. So it becomes like second nature. So people know you're going to have time to ask questions um, after. And then you just model it. Like, I'm going to jump in with a question. And so people begin to see, oh, okay, it's it's okay to ask that question. Or, um, and you know, sometimes you have to, like, I have one of my, um, one of my uh, direct reports, so extremely bright, but it's extremely shy. So like, we are on calls all the time. And It'll be me leading a call or people will come to me when it actually is her role. And and so she's, um, um, you know, chatting me this. So when I report out or say it, if we're on Zoom, I'm like, she said, (laughs) or, you know, that's a great suggestion you just put in the box, Danielle. Um, Yeah, ask it to the group. And so elevate her so Mm. to where she starts to feel more comfortable. So now on these calls, she's like, they were like, Ooh, you have created a monster. <laughs> and I was like, and we're better for it. Thank you. <laughs> That's yep. so awesome. Uh, Danielle, you stole my question. Cause you know, I like to ask the, the strategy questions, right. Get down to brass tacks. Mm-hmm. So Kanita, you gave some really good examples. I would love, again, I feel like you're, you're really uniquely positioned to talk to us. You mentioned, um, you know, being okay with discomfort, right. Cause a lot of this does come down to, you know, how comfortable are you with being uncomfortable? Cause that's really what multiple narratives and paradox is all about. And I think 
um, my senses and my limited experience working in sort of social justice and having these hard conversations. I'm curious when you're working with a new school or a new partner sort of outside of the container that you seem to have built within Southern Education Foundation with your team, what does that what does that look like? Like what what other steps do you see yourself taking to like start to establish that trust so that you can have these hard, uncomfortable conversations with people that maybe you don't know as well? That makes sense. Right. Um, so I um, I think one, um, you know, I always say hard skills will get you in the door, but soft skills will keep you there. Mm. Um, and there are some just very you know, human qualities that we don't always really care about. And humility is one. Mm -hmm. Um, We just need more of that in the workplace. And if I go into these spaces, like I'm very clear, um, I might have some expertise, but I'm not the expert. Like Mm -hmm. we were literally doing, um, we were actually just putting together like this um, form that we're going to float to some some of our partners for them to apply for some grants funding today. We're literally just talking about it. And so we were start, of course, me and my questions. I said, <laughs> they, were, they were going, the, the project lead was like, okay, well, we, um, they could use it for this, they can use it for that, they can use it for this. Um, and so I was like, hey, suggestion or question, why do we need to outline what they need to use the funds for? They know what they need the funds for more than we do. If we have some guardrails around what it can't be used for, offer that. But like, I'm not closest to the problem. So I'm not going to be able to tell you what I, you know, I might have some, what research says works Mm -hmm. or what, you know, I've learned from other experiential things, but like, all of this work should be about empowering people that are closest to the problem to be able to solve it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I go in with that. And so I'm very, very like humble. I was just on a panel for grant makers for education the other day. And I was like, look, I have brought one of my fellows because I know a little bit about this stuff, but I have never been a superintendent. So guess what? You need to hear from the people who actually do the job. And so mm-hmm. I'm very clear that like, I don't have all the answers and I don't have all the experience and, and I'm about making sure that I'm elevating the expertise and lived experience of, of those all involved. I think that's just critical. Mm. So Danielle, I don't know if you remember and um, Kanita, at the time we're recording this, it hasn't hit the airways, but I just want to point out to our listeners, we interviewed Dr. Lisa Mitchell, who works for, I don't know, Kanita, if you know her, she's a former student at Johns Hopkins too. And she works, she's like the, um, she's, I mean, she's a, like theatrical director for Disney in, at New, in New York, Broadway. Oh, wow. And she works with um, underserved schools to bring theater to their schools. And we were talking to her about this very thing. Like, how do you, how does Disney, big giant Disney build trust with very small you know, low SES schools. And she said that we value and honor the local knowledge, Mm -hmm. similar to what you said, that what we are able to do is similar to what you're talking about with the grant. Mm -hmm. She talked about guardrails and she said, we give them the Disney script. So it's Lion King. And we say, interpret it as you will. Right. And so I just, I think that's really cool that two women in very, two women who are leaders in very different industries are using a very similar tactic 
to build connection and trust with their partners, whoever they are. So anyway, I just, that's a little digression, but I just, that gave me chills when you started talking. I was like, Oh, that's so cool. (laughs) I love that. And the last thing I will share about that is, uh, so I had a whole career in public policy for about seven, eight years. Mm -hmm. um, And I remember being in um, a meeting um, where we were trying to, I think, advocate for a particular policy. Um, And I think we're meeting on Capitol Hill and someone said something that has always profoundly resonated with me. And they said, um, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Um, and I never want to be responsible for having anybody that I represent to be on any menu. <laughs> so I'm always trying to mm. offer them a seat at the table. Um, mm. and, and that's what it's about. Yeah, and can you elaborate on that? They one? bring the table. <laughs> like it's yeah. their table, actually. I'm at your table. Yeah. Um, I would love for you to, yeah, keep going. Go, go, sorry. Now yeah, I'm like no, so excited. I'm not like, a follow up question on that, but keep going. Yeah. No, like if so, if you're, if you are not at in these discussions being, actively advocating for what it is that is impacting you and yours, then, um, you know, the people making the decisions, they don't, like, it's almost like just, are you a number? (laughs) Or Mm -hmm. like, they they don't have the same um, dog in the fight, or why am I not being eloquent today? Um, You are, go, go, you're great. they just don't understand or have the same um, vested interest in the decision. And so like, and then they also are not, um, they don't have the same things at stake. And so the people in that actually are impacted by policies need to be in the discussions around policies and practice and regulations. Like there just needs, that just needs to become a regular thing. Like we need to make sure that the communities that um, we're serving are part of the discussion. Same with philanthropy. Like I work in philanthropy and philanthropy used to be notorious for just coming in Mm -hmm. to communities, dumping money and say, implement this thing that I think will work. And ask nobody (laughs) in any community, anything. Um, And so again, it's, you are, you don't know actually what I need. You don't know um, how this is, what this looks like in real life operational like practice. You just, mm-hmm. um, you just think, you know, based on what the data or the research has shown, but you actually just don't really know how this works. Um, mm-hmm. And so people who actually have some real skin in the game, a vested interest, truly impacted by what we're you know, making in these halls of Congress or whatever state house, um, school board needs to always be in the discussions around these things. Yeah, absolutely. So I, you know, selfishly, um, and part of the reasons I started this podcast is I am committed to helping to cultivate senses of belonging, right? Like I care deeply that my students and anyone whom I encounter feel seen, however they define that. And so I'm curious, Kanita, as you, you know, build this trust and, and share your approach to leadership and the ways that you engage with schools and partners um, in your work, what do you think the impact is on something like belonging and inclusivity? Like what, what role does paradoxical leadership play in, in those important soft skills? I, I hate the word soft skills, but I know I that's know. what we call them because they're not soft. They're like critical skills. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. I, I mean, we could, we could just, the three of us come up with a better name. I know we today, did. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think, I think when you think about um, 
paradoxical thinking and mm-hmm. the mindsets that it, um, I think, as we mentioned earlier, it opens up your mind um, to new possibilities and the fact that there are varied forms of right and very varied forms of excellence. And so we stop othering things that don't align with what we typically know to be right. Um, and so that's where you start to get this sense of belonging. It's like, okay, we can really um, really be thinking about what it means if we actually <laughs> realize that there are very ways to, to be the right and right. And um, like for, we were talking to, um, one of my fellowship programs that I used to run for SEF and will still run um, until we hire a new leadership development director (laughs) soon. Um, And we're talking about what it means for race and racism and privilege and all that stuff to be under theorized in education and how we continue to culturally other other people. And so like um, a paradox mindset allows us to see, okay, there, we can do this in a very different way. And it could be as simple as like, you go to a school that has a huge population of ELL learners, um, English language learners or ELL students. And you immediately think the right answer is to um, hire more students, uh, teachers that can teach English. Mm-hmm. Where the, another right answer could be, you just create a dual immersion program and you leverage those cultural and linguistic assets that the students come in the door with, but mm-hmm. you cannot open your mind to that because we have in our mind, right is they need to learn English. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those are the type of things you stop to othering other others. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yep. Yeah. You mm-hmm. talked about um, with newer cultivating partnerships and the policy work that you were doing. Um, making sure that those that are the most connected to these challenges, or these problems are part of the conversation. You talked about avoiding the othering. What, are you, what do you think are some common missteps that some leaders might make, um, whether it's, uh, or, or, let me just rephrase that and Carrie, you don't have to edit this out because it's part of my thinking process, but um, you know, what, are the, what are those common missteps that leaders might make when um, they're trying to cultivate belonging or they do have this idea in their mind of a goal of equity um, and they may fail to do so? Um, I think a misstep is um, one, just not truly understanding equity, Mm. inclusion, what that means. Like, you know, one of the things we say to people is like, you have to, to move from diversity to like actual inclusion means like you stop counting the people to making the people count. Like that Mm -hmm. is the difference. And so we're still, we just don't understand what, what those terms necessarily mean, you know, all the time. I mean, some people even are still very much using equity and equality interchangeably. And we just all know that is just wrong. So we should do that. Um, so I think that is the misstep. I think, um, I think uh, another mixed misstep, um, and uh, again, another plug to Hopkins, uh, is that, um, we don't always value praxis, this intersection of research and practice. Like either we do lived experience because, you know, we're all black. So we know what it means to do this, 
Or we go by, well, the research says this is what good organizations do mm-hmm. to make employees feel like they belong. And without asking a single person that has gone through, through this to say, did that actually work? Um, or do you feel different as a matter of fact? Um, mm-hmm. You know, we were in a... Um, we recently did some DEI capacity building um, that I actually uh, led for the organization right before the pandemic. And it was funny because with the consultants, um, so much of the work, all of it was focused on race. Um, and I and I looked at them, I was like, do you see that of the 10 people here, uh, nine of us are black? Like we don't, we don't need that much. Like there are other aspects of identity that we need to focus on. And I see, I think um, people come in and they're just like, this is the approach. You get a consultant, you do this race training, you do this sensitivity training, and you check the box and you can put a statement on your webpage and 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 now we are a DEI organization. And I think that's another misstep. Like you just don't, um, you don't know what it actually takes. You're just trying to apply somebody else's process, somebody else's story and not customizing it to the people that you are actually working with and serving. Um, and then, it's a living dynamic iterative process like you don't just do it and stop and I think that's probably um, another misstep like oh we did this training bam we could say we are diverse and equitable and inclusive and you're like yeah no that's not how this works it's, it's an ongoing thing yeah so Danielle we must be of similar minds because my <laughs> my last question um, well second to last question Kanina and it's not on the list so I apologize for for tossing it out there is I would imagine that you would be or are a fantastic mentor to new leaders. I just believe that. And so I'd be curious to know if you were, and and the reason I'm asking this, let me step back for a second. The reason I'm asking this is because I feel like there are organizations who are figuring this out, but in my humble opinion, there aren't enough organizations figuring it out to bring it to the system, which is really where we need to address. And so I'm asking this with that in mind, thinking, if you were standing with a group of brand new leaders at diverse organizations, what would be like your top two like tips to give them as they embark on doing the wonderful things and powerful things that you're doing with your team and your organization? Mm. And you can just do one if you can't think of two. I put yeah. two out there. So dealer's choice. Uh, so I would say watch, listen to, get close to other good leaders that you know, like you, you know, there are people out there doing this, doing it well, mm-hmm. and, you know, learn from them, ask them questions, have teas, have coffee, learn, like mentorship, as you pointed out, is critical, I think, in just any professional development, but also development as a leader. Um, I would say um approach it as a skill that you can develop I think we talked about earlier like I wasn't just born or you know some people are you know born to do be this leader uh but there you can do it and know that you can do it at every level in the organization you don't have to wait to be the president CEO Mm -hmm. um to be a leader in the organization there's leadership at every level and I would just say listen more than you talk mm. like there's just sometimes listen and that that's tried and cliche sometimes but like you, you just kind of need to listen yeah. yeah yeah 
I don't know that it's, yeah. I mean, I appreciate what you're saying about it being trite and cliche. I think it's so important. It goes back to that same idea of soft skills, right? I think those kinds of things are so critical and often overlooked um, for lots of reasons. So um, yeah, I, I love, I love the, the idea of it, it. I love the idea of, of really tapping into the resources that you have, right? Like looking for leaders and paying attention and in some ways, I mean, for those of us who have been through lots of academic training, treat it, treat it like that, right? Like this is another sort of learning course. This is an on the job sort of learning course. Um, the other thing I really loved Kanita, um, and I had, we haven't had too many people say it. So I wanted to point it out. I appreciated cause you said it earlier, this notion that, um, being a leader doesn't mean you have it like on your, your door or your name tag or as your identity, like you can, you can start learning how to be a leader in whatever role you're playing at this moment, regardless of where you are hierarchically in the, in the, in the organization. So I, I appreciate that. Danielle, any last questions for our wonderful guests? Um, well, I do have a last question. I don't, I apologize, Kanita, if it's a little more than maybe like my, my <laughs> first question that it was a doozy of a question, but as you're talking and I was thinking about your work at SEF and equity and I keep thinking about the past year and a half of the pandemic and maybe just because the challenge the pandemic was on my mind from today. And there's so many people have said that COVID, you know, just expose a lot of the fractures, particularly related to equity and education for students. But, you know, if you can, I know we don't have that much time left, but just can you give us some, you know, actions that you took and your team took to overcome some of these challenges associated with equity um, during the pandemic and how that perhaps how you're still learning uh, about how to navigate those challenges. Yeah. So for us, um, the, the pandemic only laid bare for people, what we already knew to be there. Like we knew those equity challenges were there. They may have been amplified um, for some, um, but we already, you know, is is what we exist to do. So particularly around education. And so we knew that was there. Um, what we, I would say kind of how we were responsive is that um, we went into listening and responsive and response mode um, more than offering, this is what we offer. Mm -hmm. It was um, very much like, you know, for my fellowship, we have this whole equity equity curriculum um, and all that was kind of put on pause. It was like, y'all are navigating a whole new world of educating in the time of a pandemic. How can we be supportive? How can we be um, a trusted source for resources? Mm -hmm. Who can I bring in? to put in front of you to help you do things um, or, or you know get more resources. So it was a lot of listening and responding um, and also then being um, a voice, a platform for what they were saying. And so we heard this from the practitioners. So this is what we wrote to state representatives about, like this is what you actually need to focus on. And this is how you need to spend ARPA funds, and this is what you need to attend to um, in the CARES Act, because we know this is because parents and students and teachers and school district leaders are telling us these. So it was more just trying to be um, a trusted resource for what we knew was just a, um, you know, unparalleled experience, like just education as we knew it, just kind of, not kind of ceased to exist. Mm -hmm. And um 
And, you know, none of us were around for the Spanish flu of 1918 or whatever. Like nobody knew how to do this. Um, <laughs> right. And so right. we very much acknowledged that um, and just tried to be a resource for, mm-hmm. for folks as they needed it. Yeah, I appreciate you, again, returning to the theme of listening and responsiveness. And you also keep returning to elevation and platforms. So I think those were key pieces that um, I really appreciated you talking about. Carrie, you had one last Can question I, I know as thing? well. Yep, yeah, please. please do. So one of the things that we um, were very intentional and used this opportunity because it was an opportunity to reset um, is that we also were reframing the kind of probable definition of what we are seeing as wrong with with schools. Like, I think the current problem problem definition of what we're seeing in terms of outcomes and the disparities in race, income, is very much um, deficit discourse that really locates the blame on the students and the families. And this is an opportunity to say, hello, we, we knew this was wrong, but clearly systems are broken. <laughs> so this is the opportunity to stop absolving ourselves of the responsibility to fix systems. Like this is messed up because X, Y, and Z did not happen. Um, Kids stop eating because they didn't get this. Kids stop coming to school because they have no broadband. You know, like these are very systemic things um, and that we really were able to shift that narrative to say, yeah, you don't always need malintent and bad actors for bad things to happen, uh, especially for children and two children. Um, and so it's, it's time for us to actually fix systems. Yeah, I, I think that example too, Kanita, when I was listening to you talk about the listen and respond and then also advocate right at the policy level, whether it's state or federal, I think that's a really good lesson and takeaway for educators, would-be educators, policymakers, that the knee-jerk reaction doesn't have to be to throw another intervention down the throats of schools and districts and parents. And that, you know, I found myself personally as an educator doing a lot more listening and just making space, like dropping assignments and readings and things that we thought were important and just saying, how are you today? What do you need from me? And I, and I hope that people are listening and are hearing what you're saying, that interventions don't have to take the form of fix it now. An intervention could be a listening tour, right? I mean, that's, that's part of it. So I, I, I appreciate, um, and to me that feels um, right and right too, right? Like that feels paradoxical too, because our knee jerk is go fix it. And you're saying, no, let's slow down and listen, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is really counterintuitive for some of what we're taught around, especially education interventions, right? Yep. Um, and also, you don't need to fix the people. You need to actually fix the systems. Absolutely. Yes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So amen to that. So the last question is just really, we we um, we did this last season, and I think it's really important, speaking of creating space, we always just love to offer our guests a chance to share anything that we either didn't ask, you didn't have a chance to say, or anything you just want to say as sort of the last, the last comment before we end the episode. So it's the floor is yours, Kanita. <laughs> you know, the funny thing is I knew you were going to ask me this and I thought I would have a good answer for yeah. you. So we touched on so much yeah. over Like, I think it just went in so many different directions. Yeah. Um, I would just say, um, 
yeah, no, again, like we, leadership is actually something that can be taught and honed and developed. And I wish we um, would really push that narrative. Uh, I wish more people would invest in cultivating leaders, um, mm -hmm. like literally time, talent and treasure to mm -hmm. invest in them. Um, I um, hope more people are inspired to be leaders um, and recognizing that there is not um, one form of leadership, that it looks mm -hmm. a lot of different ways. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm like, I know as soon as we're done, I'm like, oh, man, I said that. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> well, I know you're not I know you're not looking for affirmations, but I think that is a really nice way to conclude the the podcast, because, you know, when I look back at the guests that we've had on this on this series, we've had, you know, skate ice skating coaches and Peloton cyclists and coach it like um, uh, people who coach other people like confidence coaches and and yourself being a you know, a chief operating officer. And then we've had leaders of universities. So just in what you're saying, all of these women show up as leaders in all sorts of ways, right? And it's their talent and their time and their gifts that really make them the leader. So um, I think that's an awesome way to, to conclude. And I appreciated you um, elevating that. So uh, I knew that this was going to be awesome, but it was way better than I even could have imagined. So Kanita, thank you again so much uh, for coming on. And I know you're newer to this role, so maybe um, we'll have you back on another episode because um, I'd love to hear more about your work and what you do with schools and, and your partners. So thank you again so much for your time. And Danielle, always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Fellowship and learning. That's right. <laughs> and thank you both. I really appreciated the opportunity and I had a good time. So sincere under the glaciers your last year. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.